a word to the younger folks. This is a great story about Jesus going back to his hometown that he had left years ago. And some of the people back in his hometown were not all that welcoming to him when, when he came back, which was a little surprising, um, I think, a little surprising. Uh, you know, he grew up there, but they had the idea that maybe because he came back and he could do so much that maybe he was trying to act better than they were. And they started throwing things back at him from when he was a kid there. Like, oh, you just came from working class people. You don't really know all those things, do you? Somebody's putting words in your mouth because you can't really do all that yourself. And then he mentioned things about his family. And, well, it's a long story, but they were trying to put him down. And they were trying to make him feel like he had no power or authority there. And so because they didn't have faith in him, he couldn't do anything. So what do you think it means to put your faith in someone? Um, that you trust them. When you trust them. Very good. Anything else come to mind? Um. Well, here's another question then. Have you ever had a moment in your life when you wished that someone had put their faith or their trust in you? Can I'll give you an example. Once when I was about your age, I was asked to do a solo in one of the choirs I was in. <clears throat> and so part of me was very excited and part of me was scared to death, <laughs> you know, and I was afraid I was going to forget the words. I was afraid I was just going to freeze and nothing would come out of my mouth. And so I had a very good teacher who said, now, Lyle, you know the words, you have a good voice. You're going to be fine. I have faith in you, and you should have faith in yourself. And so, what do you think happened? Um, the solo, and it was fine. But it was yeah, helpful. you were fine. Yeah, it was helpful when someone else put their faith and trust in me, assured me, reassured me, reminded me that everything was going to be fine. So that's one of the lessons from this long gospel reading today is that, you know, Jesus is with us always, right? Even if we don't know it or we forget it, Jesus is always with us. And one of the lessons for us is to say, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, Jesus will also put faith and trust in us and together we can do marvelous things. Part of the gospel reading today was when Jesus sent his disciples out, he gave them authority to do wonderful things. They healed people, they cast out demons, and they represented God in the world in a way that 
was incredibly powerful and wonderful in ways that people in his hometown couldn't see. So it's a reminder for us today to always put our faith and our hope and our trust in the one who can help us do marvelous things in this world in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, today's Gospel reading really is made up of two very distinct parts. Jesus going to visit his hometown. Remember which one that was? Nazareth, right? And then Jesus sending out his disciples two by two. And they're very distinct. Um, they're capable of standing alone as stories, but as we're noticing in Mark, he likes to put stories together because sometimes there is a contrast that makes a very important point. And sometimes when you look at both stories together, you get a bigger picture. So the first story is really a story of failure. After initial enthusiasm, the people of Jesus' hometown turned against him. And in fact, in verse 5, it says Jesus was unable to do any miracles there. But yet the second story in the gospel reading today was a success. The disciples, again, Mark tells us, cast out many demons. They anointed many sick people and healed them. And it was wonderful. But it's odd, isn't it, that Jesus, who up to this point had been so powerful in his gospel. I mean, if you remember some of the stories we've already had this summer, Jesus has power over nature. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's raising people from the dead. And in his hometown, he could do nothing. While the disciples, who so often kind of missed the point about who he was and what um, his mission was, uh, were powerful and effective. The two parts really are so different, and their difference is so unexpected that it comes as no surprise that a lot of commentaries about the Gospel of Mark say preachers shouldn't try to preach both stories together. They should pick one or the other. But I think there's something about putting them together. So uh, I think there is a purpose that Mark is trying to tell us about God's power and God's place in the world. But there's also another part of the story, and that is our part in working with God in the world and with this power. Together, both stories tell us about the power of faith and also the power of sin that can erode the power of faith. Together, these stories tell us something about what happens when ego and pride get in the way of faith, when we get in the way, and what happens when hope and faith and expectation clear the way and then God is restored into that central place 
in our life and our world. There's a story that uh, journalist Tom Friedman once told uh, in order to explain the Middle East peace process, which so often was struck, uh, uh, was stuck, uh, it could, not, could not go any farther. And so he told this story about a man named Goldberg. And each week when the results of the lottery were announced, Goldberg prayed to God something like this. God, why don't I ever win the lottery? What have I done wrong? I've been a good man. Why shouldn't I win? And so the next week, the lottery was announced and Goldberg would be disappointed and he would cry out to God, what will it take, Lord? I'm a righteous man. I'm an honorable man. I'm a hardworking man. Would it be so hard for you just once to let me win the lottery? And then suddenly the clouds parted and there was a voice that came from the heavens and the voice said, Goldberg, give me a chance, buy a ticket. <laughs> so two stories, two distinct stories. In one story, the people bought a ticket and the other one, they refused. But why? Why would people not welcome Jesus back into his hometown? We might imagine that things would really go well. A lot of people go back to their hometowns and they become hometown heroes. Um, we would assume that Jesus would be received with joy and affirmation by people who knew him, and initially he was. Uh, the people of Nazareth, those who had known Jesus as a boy and a young man, were astonished, really, by his power and wisdom. But quickly, their surprise and astonishment turned to offense. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? Why? What happened? Why all of a sudden did this plain, simple boy grow up to be a teacher in our synagogue? And that's probably the root of the problem. Um, that one who had been so recently one of them was now seemingly so far above them. And maybe they felt slighted. Who does he think he is? Why him and not me? Just yesterday, it seemed that they had only known Jesus as a boy but today, by his words and demeanor, they had to look up to him as someone who was much more knowledgeable and powerful. And I think it was hard on their pride. Recently, I saw an article talking about Barack Obama as a man of great faith. But you know how people always can comment about that. And one of the responses listed after the article said, I knew Barack Obama in high school and I can't help but erase the memory of him as a boy standing under the bleachers smoking a cigarette. And so again, he couldn't picture Barack Obama as an adult and the leader that he would become. He could only envision him as that um, teenager smoking under the bleachers. There's a warning for all of us there. 
don't let the blessing of an earlier companionship or a different relationship blind you at a later time to someone who has become great or who has accomplished something. But perhaps the matter at hand goes even deeper than this all too human tendency to envy one another and feel slighted by success of someone that we once knew or thought we knew back in the day. After all, who would we think of today as Jesus' hometown crowd, as his own people? And I'm thinking, if you'll go with me in this way of thinking, that it's the church. In some ways, we are his hometown. Jesus has been a part of the church and a part of our congregations for a long time. And maybe the question is, how do we welcome Jesus into our midst? Is it even remotely possible that we who think we know Jesus best because we've known him, maybe in some cases all of our lives, might at times honor him the least. Maybe we have an image of Jesus that we carry with us that we learned as a child, and we haven't been able to have an adult picture of who Jesus is, not only for our personal self, but our congregation and the world. In his spiritual autobiography, Now and Then, Frederick Buechner, who is a great writer, I think, an Episcopal priest he was, um, sometimes writes a little bit off the beaten path. He's got an odd sense of humor. And uh, he had an encounter once with Agnes Sanford, who was a Christian healer. And the most vivid image that she presented when she was with Buechner was of Jesus standing in the middle of church services all over the world with his hands tied behind his back, unable to do any mighty works because the ministers who led the services either didn't expect Jesus to be there or didn't expect Jesus to do anything, or didn't dare ask Jesus to do anything. It's quite an image, isn't it? Jesus standing in a church, hands tied behind his back. So then Buechner added this, I recognized immediately my own kinship with those ministers. And maybe you and I can say the same thing. Is it possible that we in the church, Jesus' latter-day hometown crowd, are sometimes the least likely to call upon him, the least likely to turn to him and expect that he will be with us and do something for us and with us and through us. Often today in the church, I think, we tend to get more focused on ourselves. And you know, here I'm preaching to people from at least two congregations that are going through some major transition. Grace Lutheran, Christ Church Lutheran, 
And so often I know it's easy to look back and say, oh, what we used to be. If you could only remember when, wouldn't it be nice to go back to that time? And I'm not sure that that's the best thing to do, um, to think about our attendance, to think about what we were, or to think about the problems that are in the way of us achieving all of those goals again. So maybe it's more something like this. I visited a church a while back as the night minister, and I so often was invited to tell night ministry's story. And I got there early and had the opportunity to meet one of the elders or deacons of the church. And uh, he said, well, since you're here early, let me give you a tour. And it was a grand old church. I mean, really, it was beautiful. It's not far from here. And um, we had this lovely visit. And he said, you know, we were down to 50 older members. And then uh, something happened. And I said, what happened? And he said, we had a new pastor come. And he said, it wasn't all our new pastor, but she made a difference. She had us study the Bible again. And in fact, she can summarize the message of the Bible in just six words. My first thought was, I don't know that I want to hear what those six words are, but I asked anyway. And the six words, I am God and you're not. <laughs> I am God and you're not. Sounds kind of silly, maybe at first glance, but then if you think about it, it really does say something, right? The church our gathering together. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's about God and what God can do through us and through the church and through the work that we do in our neighborhood. The power of the living God is what makes churches go. And the collective pride and ego that sometimes get in the way of seeing God working in a church or asking God to be active in our church life or in our personal life, that can hold us back. So in this congregation, uh, they were humbled by their decline, but they were blessed by the leadership of a new pastor who understood that it wasn't really about them. And they turned to God and called upon God to guide them, prayed to God to renew them, and they acknowledged their own need for healing and for change, which sometimes isn't the easiest thing to acknowledge. And they went from 50 old, tired members to 450 members with all kinds of new programs, 
and new opportunities for people to serve and to be included in the life of the congregation. They had taken risks in faith. They had bought the ticket. When Jesus was rejected in Nazareth, he did not, though it might have been painful for him, he did not reject the people that rejected him. He didn't take offense. He only sadly shook off the shoes of his sandals, shook his head and moved on. And he moved on by sending the disciples out two by two to preach and to teach and to heal. And he said something interesting to them that they were to travel light, to take nothing for the journey, but the clothes on their back. In these times of change and challenge for the church, or in times of change and challenge in our personal lives, God may be telling us to lighten our load and even helping us to do that along the way. God is calling us to let go of maybe some weighty assumptions about how we've always done things. God is maybe telling us, like that once prominent church, to leave behind some of the big bulky suitcases filled with pride and ego. Maybe God is asking us to surrender some truly heavy stuff, like old conflicts that we've been bearing and grudges that we've been nursing. Maybe God is using this time of transition to strip these things from us so that maybe we can travel light again, relying on God's power alone to guide us and trust God's grace to uphold us. So Jesus Christ is here and now in your home church, in your community, in your life. The question is, are we going to receive Jesus? Are we going to buy the ticket? Or are we going to let him stand in the corner with his hands tied behind his back? The price of the ticket is faith. Wild, risky faith. Bold, trusting faith in the power of God in Jesus Christ who makes all things new. Amen.